We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? Good, that good. Okay, thank you. Wonderful. Uh, man, it's great to have you here today. Even though you're not excited about it, I'm excited that you're here today. So at least one of us is happy about you being here. Uh, man, uh, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And on behalf of our pastors and our, um, and our church members, uh, welcome. If you're a guest, we'd love to meet you after the service at the Connect table. Please stop by and, and say hello. Uh, we'd love to give you any information that you want about us, answer any questions that you have. And we'd just love to hear your story, how you came to join us here today. It's our joy that you're here. And we've been praying that when you leave here, uh, you would leave here loving Jesus more than you did when you came in. That's our hope and our prayer for you today. So thanks for being here. Hey, I've got a couple quick announcements for us, and then, uh, and then a big announcement, and then we want to pray, and then Pastor Ronnie will come and bring our word from John chapter 14 today. We got a lot going on um, between now and the end of October as a church. Today is our women's mentoring kickoff at the Rhino, which is the one block west of here. Yeah, woo. And uh, we've got 60 women who are going to be journeying with us in groups of four to six through the book of 2 Timothy this semester. And so we're really excited about that. And so ladies, don't forget three o'clock at the Rhino for that kickoff. Uh, October 6th is Family Fun Day at the Fun Farm. That's a lot of words that begin with the letter F. Family Fun Day at the Fun Farm, uh, October 13th, Women's Apple Picking, Men's Retreat, October 21 and 22. Introduction to Theology class starts next week at 8 a.m., and there's two slots left, so someone should stop paying attention to what I'm saying right now. Go to EmmausKC.com and sign up for that one, all right? And then How to Read the Bible, October 21st. And so we have a lot of opportunities coming forward for fellowship and for learning for your, for your discipleship, and so make sure that you take the opportunity to, to engage in those Stop by the Connect table for more information about those as well. 
to Joy today. We got a few people visiting with us who have gone out from us. The, the Stantons are back in town today, members who had left us and, and moved to, um, to Des Moines. And, and we have the Osbournes back in town today who we've sent out to, um, to Waco as, as a pastor there in Waco at a church. And so it's great to have them back today. And then today's also the last day for one of our members, Andrew Weaver, as he's moving to Texas um, to take a new job there. And so in a moment, we want to pray for Andrew as he's leaving us to go out um, to to Texas to, to, to follow the Lord's leading that direction. But we have a really big announcement today that we want to, to share with you. And then um, I want to just pray for you as we get ready to get into the word. Uh, we have the joy uh, today to announce to you as a church that starting October the 1st, um, Pastor Sam Parkinson will be coming on full time at Emmaus as one of our pastors here. Yeah. I'm we are, we are incredibly excited about this. Shannon's not able to be here with him today. Shannon had her wisdom teeth removed, and the recovery is taking a little bit longer than, um, than planned. But, uh, um, but man, we are excited for this move. It's not something that is sprung on us. It's something that we've been planning and looking to and, and, and thinking about. Uh, it's something that your finance team and your elders have walked through and looked at and discussed, how does this take place? What does this uh, look like for us? And so I've um, been really, really excited. Here, here's, the, here's the benefit it's going to be to our church. There is no one that wakes up in the morning more eager to walk through all of your junk with you than Pastor Sam, right? He wakes up excited to get to counsel, to care, and to walk with you no matter how difficult it is, no matter how long it takes, Right? If you had the option to come to me for pastoral counseling or go to Sam, I would deeply urge you to go to Sam, <laughs> right? Not because I don't want to counsel you, but because he's much better at it than I am, right? He will be able to bring a new life to our church in the area of care of our members by giving his full attention to that. In addition to that, it's going to free me up from doing as much pastoral care and counseling so that I can focus on leadership, systems, structures, those sorts of things for us as a church. As we continue to grow, we've got to make some steps forward in the way that we, our system, we, way we do systems and structures and those things. And so it'll allow me to run in my lane and allow Sam to run in his lane. And I believe it's going to bless our church tremendously for, the, for both those reasons. And so we're thrilled for that. So I just want to say this. If you're, if you're a giver to Emmaus, a regular giver, thank you for giving, right? Your giving provides the opportunity for us to make moves like this so that we can care for the members of our church um, to a greater extent. So thank you for that, that ongoing giving that you do. Um, here's what I want to pray for today. And this week, we've heard from a lot of our members, there's been sickness, there's been hospitalizations, there have been um, doubts and fears and, and even just questioning who God is among among our members this week, a whole series of things that we've had the opportunity to walk through and counsel. So I just wanna pray for you that the song that we just sang would be true in our hearts, right? That Jesus would be our sure and steady anchor. That the spirit who resides within us would be the seal that that is our anchor. Right, I wanna pray for you that we would have assurance and we would have faith in seasons of doubt. And then I wanna invite Ronnie to come up and to open up for us John chapter 14 as we continue through the book of John. Let's pray. Jesus, you are very good to us. Thank you for allowing us to gather here today in this place, together with these people, to sing about who you are, to pray, to confess our sins, to come to you knowing that though we have nothing to offer, you are gracious and you are kind and you are saving. 
thank you for this opportunity. Today, Jesus, I pray for one of our own, Andrew, as he departs from us to move to Texas, would you go before him? Would you lead him to a faith family there that he can plug into and serve and be served by? Would you give him great faithfulness to you in the transition of his life? Father, I pray for our members. And then I'll extend that, Father, and I pray for even those who are gathered here who are not members, who are doubting who you are today, who might be questioning your faithfulness today, who are hurt or who are discouraged today. In their trial, in their struggle, in the season that they're in, would you remind them that it is not their steadfastness of faith that is their anchor, but it's Christ. That Christ and his faithfulness and his covenant to us and his gift of the spirit upon us is our anchor that we hold to in the moments of doubt. May today as we're about to see in John, may we see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And may we know that we have come to the Father by him. Spirit, speak a better sermon than Ronnie has prepared. Minister to our hearts today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, let me start uh, by once again congratulating Pastor Sam. Uh, Man, I love you. And you... uh, Already heard uh, countless examples of why I think this is the greatest move as as a fellow pastor. But let me just speak for a moment about about this decision. Uh, did I go off here? We good? We've been so blessed by you as a pastor. My family's been so blessed by you. I've been pastored so well by you um, as a member who's under your And so, uh, man, it, it just feels like this moment feels like God is lavishing his grace on our church to have you... Uh, be able to be able to free up more time, more capacity to, to lead us, man. It's God is good to our church. So thanks for pastoring us so well. Love you, brother. Okay, hey, let's, uh, let's I know we just prayed. Let, let's pray one more time before we jump into this uh, immensely rich text. God, you're good, and we need you this morning. Lord, we're, we're fickle, we're frail, and that even shows up on Sunday mornings. Lord, our minds are prone to drift. Our hearts are prone to doubt. Lord, we're skeptical, we're cynical. And so, Lord, would you soften us this morning? We need you to come through. We need you. Rid me of myself, rid Emmaus of herself, and may we make much of you this morning. So speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, so we are uh, still trekking through the book of John, and one of the difficulties about walking through or reading through a longer book of the New Testament like the Gospel of John is that uh, your microphone goes funky. (laughs) That's a difficulty. Uh, It's because I wore a sweater. (laughs) But I couldn't not wear a sweater. So I personally braved the second summer of the Midwest for you all. So enjoy the, enjoy the 70 degree weather. Anyways, one of the difficulties about walking through or preaching through a longer book of New Testament like John 
is that we are prone to, to miss the grand narrative of the story, right? We're prone to miss the unified story. What happens is we start to read longer books, we preach through longer books in sections, right? In pericopes and little stories. And what ends up happening, if we're not disciplined Bible readers or disciplined sermon listeners, what ends up happening is these little stories become fragmented, isolated sections that have very little to do with what became before and what came after what's happening in the story. Listen, that's a really big Bible reading mistake because what happens when these passages, when these sermons become isolated events that are not a part of a larger narrative, what happens is we miss the weight of the story. We miss it. We miss the emotion. We miss, we miss the ethos of the story. They become totally isolated, randomly assorted lessons, not a walking heightening, growing story that we must pay attention to. And listen, we cannot make that mistake with John because the moment we find ourselves in in this text today is a moment of heaviness. This is the moment of the movie you don't want to miss. This is the portion where if someone talks, you punch them in the arm. The moment in the room of our story is heavy. And we should feel it. We should feel the emotion the author is writing with. We should feel the emotion of those who are in the narrative. We should feel the moment of heaviness. One majorly helpful way the writer of John has helped us tremendously in this endeavor of keeping the whole story together because he has this theme that runs consistently through the book. And if we can trace this theme, we can trace the whole story. And he's given us a little word to do it. And that little word is our Hour, H-O-U-R. Throughout the book, we have seen this theme come up over and over. Jesus will do a miracle, he'll perform a sign, he'll preach a sermon, and then he'll flee abruptly, and we'll be left with this kind of mysterious phrase, his hour had not yet come. And we keep seeing it over and over. His hour has not come. His hour has not come. The first time we see it is with Jesus' first public miracle when he turns water into wine at the wedding, right? His mother comes to him and says, the wine is out. And he says, first, what does this have to do with me, woman? Don't do that. (laughs) Second, he says, my hour has not yet come. Then we see it again in John 7, verse 6. During a major feast and festival, Jesus says the same refrain, my hour has not yet come. And just a few verses later, same chapter, chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus is preaching publicly. The crowds gather around to arrest him, and somehow he flees the scene, and it says that they could not arrest him because his hour had not yet come. The Almost the identical thing happens in John 8. John 8, verse 20, the crowd wants to arrest Jesus because of his public teaching, but they can't quite get a grip on him because his hour had not yet come. Throughout all of this, all of these hours that have not yet come, we've seen some pretty crazy things, have we not? Jesus has turned water into wine. He's walked on water. He's made a blind man see by spitting in dirt and rubbing it into his face. He has been arrested multiple times. He's he's even claimed to be equal with God. One of his best friends has died and he raised him from the dead. He fed 5,000 people with a loaf of bread. 
We've seen crazy things. And all these miraculous stories are tied together by this mysterious phrase of it not being Jesus's hour. Each time we hear it, if we don't read it, it was just isolated events. Each time we hear it, our anticipation should grow. We get more interested in the story. The narrative builds, the drama heightens, the plot thickens. Each passing occurrence is our had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, in chapter 12, do you remember? The story utterly flips. Jesus says, finally, after all of these instances of my hour had not yet come, he finally utters the words, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And at this moment, your stomach should have dropped. Because if we can keep the unified story in mind, we know this is a big deal. The hour has come. Finally, it's here. We we get to see what he was talking about. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we, we can feel the intensity. At this moment, the apostles would have been like, what? Whatever's about to happen is very significant. At this point, the, 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 the drama is as high as it gets. And hear me, this is why we, we say all the time, I mean, if you're bored reading the Bible, your boredom is misplaced. This story is majestic. The hour has come. We know, having the advantage of reading the story on this side of the crucifixion, that we, have, we know that the hour will entail that he has to leave his disciples to go to the Father. That's going to be one of the things that his hour means. He has to leave. He's going to leave the the presence of the disciples. He's going to face Golgotha and deal with a wooden cross where he will be hung like a traitor. Sam was right last week when he pointed out that chapters 13 and 17 are like one event. They likely take place with just a few hours of each other. Jesus is eating with his disciples. Sam said last week that their feet might have still been wet from the foot washing as he's saying these things. So he's eating with his disciples for the last time. And in the process of this meal, he's explaining to them that he must depart. He's got to go. He has to leave them. Though they've been walking so closely for so long now, he has to leave. That is where we are in our moment. So let's jump into our text. We'll read it straight through one time, and then we'll jump straight through verse by verse, okay? This is John 14, chapter 1. With that background, think of this. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let not your hearts be troubled. First clause there, you see it? Verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. It, it hit me as I was preparing this sermon. Those, those words hit me like a ton of gospel bricks. And again, let this be an argument for why you should read large chunks of, of scripture to keep the unified story in mind because what happened really for the first time because we've been walking through this book, I had the weight of what happened through John 1 through 13 in mind when I read, let not your heart be troubled. Because we can read, let not your heart be troubled and that feels just like some ambiguous advice, just kind of in general, don't have a troubled heart. But that's not what's happening here. If we keep context in mind, this isn't just some ambiguous advice. This is riddled with gospel security, which our church desperately needs. So let me just read. Let me go back a little bit. Turn to chapter 13 with me. Make sure you're looking at this. Have your Bible out or your phone out, or if you've memorized it, good job. Go to 13 in your mind then. All right, this is 1336. Remember, chapter 14, that's a very unfortunate chapter break right? Read 36 to 38, and then we're just going to read into 14.1, because Jesus didn't take a break there. Chapter 14 did. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. What? Right? Did, you, did you catch what he just told Peter? He just told Peter two detrimental things. Right? He just told Peter first, I'm leaving. Right? This is their security. This is their Messiah. This is their rabbi. This is the one that they've been following for years now. And he just announces abruptly, hey, I'm leaving. Two, he says, oh, by the way, Peter, in my leaving, you're going to let me down. You're going to deny me three times by the, by the end of the night. Right, so feel the weight of the two things he just predicted, just foretold. He said, there's going to be distance between us, and you're going to let me down. Let not your heart be troubled. As a pastor of this church, man, I know your stories I've sat in living rooms and coffee shops with you. I've heard your struggles. I know so many people in this room who carry heavy baggage. And let me just tell you, if, if, I, had to, if I had to summarize the, the baggage of Emmaus Church and two problems, two plights, it very well might be the feeling that God is far from us and that we've let him down. But there is that it's deep in our people. I, I don't feel close to Jesus right now. He, he seems very distant from me. God feels very far from me. He doesn't feel near. And maybe that's good news because if he was near, I'd just let him down. Right? Over and over, there's this sin that haunts me. I feel like when I wake up in the morning and I rise out of bed, it's already there, prepared breakfast for me, and I'm going to let Jesus down again. He's far, and I've let him down. 
And Jesus says, into these chaotic realities that go into our minds, that we, it's a feedback loop that we tell ourselves, he's far and you've let him down. He's far and you've let him down. Jesus speaks into those chaotic thoughts. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's not ambiguous advice. It's gospel atomic bomb. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus can say this. Oh man, this is so good. Jesus can say this because he knows what's about to happen. You have been distant from me. You have let me down, but let not your hearts be troubled because within 24 hours, I'm hanging on a tree. Jesus says this because he knows what's about to happen. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be falsely accused by the Romans. Within 24 hours of him saying this, he's going to bear the sins of his people and drink the cup of God's wrath to the last drip. And in this history, altering, altering act, Jesus will once and for all do away with both our distance from God and our shame before God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Also, don't miss the kindness of Jesus here. This is so much like Jesus, so in line with his character. He's the one who's about to be put on trial. He's the one who's about to be abandoned, even by his most loyal disciples, who he's saying this to. He's the one who will be tortured. He's the one who is going to be forsook. He's the one who is going to hang. And if there was ever a time, ever a moment where he could call on his rights and be entitled to be ministered to, it's now. But instead of doing that, he's ministering to the apostles. You let your hearts not be troubled. Man, this is that's so much like Jesus. He forsakes his rights and he tends to our needs. His remedy for a troubled heart is belief in God, which is ultimately belief in him. Did you see it? Believe in God, believe also in me. This reinforces the fact that he is taking care of the distance and our letdown via his own death. He doesn't give us a list of actions to do, right? Oh, you have an unsettled heart, do these 20 things. No, believe. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let's keep going in our text. And as we, as we move down these verses, just be thinking about that, that phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. And then think about how each of his, each clause that Jesus says is a remedy to a troubled heart. All right, verses two and three. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus speaks eternal peace to the unsettled heart as he describes what his work on the cross will accomplish, namely heaven on earth. He reassures them that though there is pain in him leaving right now, the distance they feel, the pain of distance, it is for their good, it is for our good, for he is preparing an eternal room for us. Scholars disagree here what the eternal room entails. What, what does that mean? He's preparing many rooms. Well, what is that? There's, there's tons of different opinions. There's nuances to be, to be read, to be had. But hear me, I'm convinced, and more, more than ever, I'm convinced that we will utterly miss the point if we spend our time speculating about the nature of the room. Right, right. Think about what they're, what's happening right here. They're feeling pain because he's leaving. They don't give a rip about some room. They care because he's leaving. They want him. 
right? Th- th- this is an early Jewish context. They have a very underdeveloped view of eschaton and heaven and what that might entail. They're worried because he's leaving them. And, and look at how he comforts them. Look what he says. I go to prepare a place for you. And check this out. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you where? To myself. That where I am, you may also be. The most important feature of the room is that he's there. I fear that many of our conversations about heaven today are functionally Christless. People today want heaven for a lot of reasons. And listen, these reasons are good. And they will come to fruition. But they're functionally Christless. People want heaven because of the lack of pain. That there'll be no more pain, which is grand news to those of us who feel pain. People want heaven because there will be a lack of tears, right? No more sorrow. No more sorrow. People want heaven for the reunification of family members they long to see. People want heaven because there will be no more death there. We could go on and on and on, but hear me, if we get all of these things for all eternity and have not Christ, we have nothing. Heaven is paradise not because of the lack of pain, but because Jesus is there. I lost my mom about six months ago, and I would do anything to see her again. I I miss her into the deepest parts of my bones. But family reunification is a terribly poor substitute for seeing Jesus face to face. We want heaven because he's there. He's our treasure, nothing else. Jesus is bringing us back to himself. These things aren't bad, and certainly we will celebrate them when they come to fruition. However, our kingdom has a king, and our eternity will be spent marveling at the giver, not just enjoying the gifts. He's bringing us back to himself, church. One day, hear me. Oh, man, one day our faith will be sight, and we'll see him right there. Looking at him, Jesus, right there. In that moment, we will be more sure than ever that he's our only treasure. Verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas, being the realist he is, I love Thomas so much. I resonate with almost everything he says. Being the realist he is, Thomas has the question that everyone's thinking. What? Uh, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How, how can we possibly know the way? I, I, what am I missing here? Apostles, are you with him? I don't, I don't see it. And, and, and the, the, Thomas, or the, the question Thomas begs, Jesus answers it with one of those famous lines in our scripture, doesn't he? What does he say? Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So so don't miss it. Jesus says, I'm leaving to be with my Father in heaven. Thomas asks, how do we get to you? Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas says, nah, we don't know the way. (laughs) Jesus, in a claim of exclusivity and sufficiency, says, Thomas, I am the way. If you know me, you know the way. I am the way. I love what one theologian named D.A. Carson said about this. He says, Jesus does not simply blaze a trail. 
commanding others to take the way that he himself takes. Rather, he is the way. It's in this verse that we see the exclusivity of the gospel. I want to talk about that for a second. The exclusivity of the gospel. You've likely heard something like the mountain analogy, right? That all religions are like a pathway up to a mountain. God is sitting on top of the mountain, and we are trekking up a mountain, some on different paths, but they all lead to the same God. They all lead to the same destination. So Christianity is a path. Buddhism is a path. Islam is a path. Self-belief is probably the most walked path today. So on and so on. All these paths, though they look different, they're leading to the same destination, right? Well, let me tell you, this is utter theological baloney. On the contrary, Jesus claims exclusivity. He alone is the way. Furthermore, Christianity, contra the mountain analogy, teaches that we have no hope to get up the mountain, for dead folks don't climb mountains. Rather, Jesus transcends the mountain and comes to us, grabs us out of the grave, and we follow him as the way. The mountain analogy is rubbish. And hear me, Emmaus, we cannot faithfully do our job as ambassadors of reconciliation if we teach anything less than Jesus as the only and exclusive sufficient means of salvation. We cannot be faithful ambassadors if we teach anything less than Jesus as the only way of salvation. Jesus, is the, Jesus as the only way to the Father is not a popular teaching today. Especially, it's going to sound so arrogant to culturally conditioned ears, right? It's going to sound so arrogant to say there's one way and he has a name. You're going to hear people scoff and say something like, you mean to tell me that billions of people are wrong in their view of religion and unless they bend the knee to Jesus, they will perish? You mean to tell me that billions of people are wrong? And in that moment, when we get that question, we must clear our throats, straighten our spine, fix our wobbling knees and say, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. And moreover, it's not just me who says it, it's Christ. He himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. No one. We have an exclusive gospel. And though while that might sound like bad news, give me just a moment, a brief moment to explain why it's not only good, but beautiful. To, to do so, let, let's just think about our story, right? You and I are sinners, right? We've, we've sinned against an eternal God. We have wrought wickedness into our lives and our disobedience, we've made ourselves slaves. We rebelled against the cosmic king of the universe. Do you, do you think about that when we think about God's wrath, right? The one who breathes out stars and tells the ocean where to stop, that's the one you sinned against, right? It's not like making your older brother mad. The cosmic king of the universe we've sinned against. And hear me, we do it every day. So the reason the exclusivity of the gospel is good news is because it's beautifully inevitable. What do I mean by that? We sinned against an eternal God. Therefore, we need a once and for all sacrifice made by one who knows no beginning. We sinned against a holy God. Therefore, we need atonement 
from one whose holiness never wavered and his perfection ran to the uttermost through and through. We sinned against a God who has wrath for sin. Therefore, we need the type of, uh, of salvation that one could take on the full punishment of sin in the wrath of God. The mess we've created for ourselves in our sin left us with the need of a savior who is at the same time eternal, perfect, just, completely holy, has life in himself, is immutable and doesn't change. He's both God and man. So we can give up the exclusivity of the gospel when we find another savior who fits that bill. And hear me, we won't. The uniqueness and the exclusivity of the gospel is a direct result of the unique plight that we have. We've sinned against a holy, eternal, just, righteous God. Our plight demands none other than Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus alone has the unique identity for a sufficient work. Alone. The exclusivity of the gospel isn't just true. It's beautiful. Verses 7 through 11. If you had known me, you would known my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus' statement that he is the only way to the Father leads Philip to ask him to show the apostles the Father. To which Jesus, it almost sounds exasperated, doesn't it? He says, are you kidding me? Like, I've been with you this long. How do you not know? Which again, I relate. Philip, thanks for speaking up, because I feel like certainly God must think, Ronnie, I've been with you for this long, and you do not know. So Philip, thank you for this. So if you remember back to last week, Pastor Sam said chapters 13 through 17 are really one portion of a larger story. And these chapters have three themes, Sam said. One, the glory of the Trinity. Two, the command to love one another. And three, the inability of the flesh. Not surprisingly, I totally agree with Sam's assessment of these chapters. And I think this particular passage is a gorgeous highlight of the first of the three themes, the glory of the Trinity. Jesus reasons that the apostles have seen the Father in their viewing of him when he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What does that mean? Well, it's theologically rich. And moreover, it's beautifully mysterious. The Father and the Son are one such that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. This isn't in my notes. We're going to do, I'm, I'm literally taking a physical step aside to represent my preaching aside. Thank you. It's easy to read something like that and make a quick theological error, right? And so uh, this is a commercial for next week at our theology class. Though, though Jesus says the Father and the Son are one, and the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, we can't make the mistake of saying, therefore, we can't differentiate between the two. We, we have to be able to differentiate between the two because what we, what, we're, what we know is that within 24 hours, the son will be crushed, not the father. So while they are one and they live within one another, they have to be distinguishable for Christianity to exist, okay? A side over. 
If you want to hear more, come to next week. (laughs) Verse 12, truly, truly. Oh, wait, I skipped a whole bunch. Don't do that. Okay, so if this wasn't enough for Philip, the apostle and the other apostles, Jesus says to them, or believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying, if you don't get this idea that me and the Father are one, then just look at what I've done. In the Gospel of John alone, we've seen him turn water into wine, walk on water, heal the sick, heal the blind, and even raise someone from the dead. All of these miracles are evidences of Jesus's true identity as the Son of God, who is at the both time, at the same time, God and man. Again, to quote D.A. Carson, I love this. He says, thoughtful meditation on, say, turning the water into wine, the multiplication of the loaves, or on the raising of Lazarus will disclose what these miracles signify, that the saving kingdom of God is at work in the ministry of Jesus, and this in ways tied to his very person. The miracles then are nonverbal Christological signposts. That's, that's good. Jesus and his father are one. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus closes out our portion of John today with two seemingly preposterous statements, right? On on face value, these seem ridiculous. Let's just be honest. His two statements are this. You're going to do greater works than I've done. And if you ask me anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Those seem ridiculous, right? Greater works than Jesus? And this is where being good Bible readers, plug for the other class, how to read the Bible. This is where being good Bible readers is so important because how much damage could we do? Just imagine how much damage can be done when a statement like anything you ask in my name, I will give to you is taken out of context. People can do serious damage with that verse out of context, right? Think think about how much damage can be done when someone says, we will do greater works than Jesus is taken out of context. Man, it is so serious that we are good at reading our Bibles. Very important. And in context, these things actually kind of make sense, right? Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works than I am. I'm convinced that his first statement about us doing greater works, he doesn't have in mind either the amount of work or the quality of the work. The amount of work, what I mean is he's not saying, hey, this is is a view out there. The church that I'm starting is going to scatter around the world, and therefore these types of works are going to be all over the globe as opposed to just here where I am. I don't think that's what he's saying. I also don't think, as some people will tell you, that, that we will work because of the Holy Spirit in us greater works than him in a qualitative sense. They're not going to be better than Jesus's work. He raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Beat that. (laughs) It's not more or better. What I think Jesus is doing here, I'm convinced after studying this passage more and more, that Jesus is making a chronological statement. A chronological statement about the difference between work done on this side of the cross and work done on that side of the cross. Jesus knows he is about to depart from them to pursue his own death at the hands of the Romans. After his death and resurrection, the church will never be the same. While Jesus performed performed earthly miracles as signposts of his divinity, the church will soon declare it his divinity in a way that the world has never seen before. 
Their message will now include his death and resurrection, and therefore the death and resurrection of all who are in him. That's what he has in mind when he says, you'll do greater works than these. As far as his second statement about asking in his name, Jesus's ministry was marked maybe more than anything else by obedience to the Father. Furthermore, he ties our asking to the Father's glory. So we know our asking anything in Jesus' name has at least two caveats from the immediate context. One, it must resemble the characteristic of Jesus of obedience. And two, it must directly be tied to the Father's glory. So we, we see quickly that it's a nuanced anything. And we will see next week that Jesus has in mind the Holy Spirit here as well. He's about to bring up the helper, which is really important to interpret our passage properly. So then, Emmaus, in closing, what are we to do with a passage like this? I see our answer spelled out for us so simply in the first clause of the passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled for Jesus is God. Let not your hearts be troubled for Jesus has gone before us to prepare many rooms in the Father's house. Let not your heart be troubled for in his preparation, he is preparing a way back to himself where we get him for all eternity, our treasure. Let not your heart be troubled for in Jesus, we have the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your heart be troubled for in Jesus, we know the father. Let not your heart be troubled for in Christ, we have a mediator and king who gives generously to his children who ask. And finally, let not your heart be troubled, for we know what's going to happen in just a day's time. Just a day's time. We, 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 we've trekked along John to chapter 14. And hear me, if you're getting tired, if you're getting weary, if you're getting weak from the travel, the cross is coming. We're here. We're right there. So as we finish the book, press in. Press in to the rest of the sermons and listen. All the work has been culminating to this point. The drama is getting higher and higher and the plot is getting thicker and thicker and we're almost there. Let not your heart be troubled for within a day's time he'll be hung as a traitor. Let not your heart be troubled for in a day's time he will be falsely condemned. Let not your hearts be troubled because within a day's time he will be tortured. He'll be given a crown of thorns and given five piercings in his body. Let not your heart be troubled for in a day's time he will drink the cup of the wrath of God that should have been given to you. Let not your heart be troubled because we have traded his robes of righteousness for our filthy rags of wrath. Let not your heart be troubled because for once and for all, forever and ever and ever, he's dealt with both our distance from God and our shame before God. Let not your heart be troubled, Emmaus. So if you're a believer in the room, rest in this. Just look at him. You have a king. He's got you. And he's good. Sometimes what we need to hear as Christians who are prone to panic, who are prone to freaking out, we just need to hear, it's okay. He's got us and he's good. It's okay. He's got us and he's good. If you're a non-believer, let me ask you, is your heart troubled? Is your heart troubled? If so, man, I, we, not just me anymore, our whole church, we beg you, we implore you, 
Bring it to the only one who could do anything with a troubled heart, Jesus Christ. Trust in him, have faith in him. Receive salvation today. Church, we love you. Thank you for being with us. Let's pray. God, you are our king. We we love this story. This is a story we don't get tired of hearing. This is a story we don't get tired of telling. The story that you, though you have everything, would come to us who have nothing and give us everything. God, we love you. We need you this week. Our our hearts are not prone to be settled. Our hearts are prone to worry. Our hearts are prone to doubt. Our hearts are prone to be cold. Our hearts are prone to to be far off and distant. God, we need you to work in our hearts to have this kind of peace. Holy Spirit, we need you to work in us. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the kindness in sending your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Every week here at Emmaus, we end our time in communion. And so the distinction I just made in the sermon, I'd like to make again. This invitation to come partake in communion is an invitation to believers. So if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then we we invite you to come take. If If you haven't, This this is a great opportunity for you. If you haven't trusted in Christ yet, what I just said sounds foreign to you. Or if you haven't trusted in this exclusive Savior alone, then just watch, right? The the believers in the room are gonna come down this way. They're gonna take from one of these three tables and you just mark one of them. Mark one of them and say, I'm gonna ask that person to tell me about Jesus after the service because if they come down, they're admitting, I know Jesus. And if they admit to knowing Jesus, they can tell you about him. Believers, come take Emmaus. We love you. Thank you for watching this Emmaus KC podcast. More information about Emmaus KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.